0: n-e-t-s-u-i-t-e dot com slash w-t-f all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fucksters what the fuck nicks what is happening I'm Mark and this is my podcast w-t-f and it's been exciting lately hasn't it What does that even mean? How why am I opening like that? What am I talking about? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh Brendan and I, my business partner and producer, got some good news. Edison research is uh a real thing. And this is the podcast consumer tracking report. Now Brendan and I have been doing this show on our own. For 12 years or so right been about 12 years now i we, i wouldn't say we're, we're ogs but we're close uh we were there at the beginning when there was nothing there was a few there was some history and there was a few and then us and i believe that over time we helped define this medium podcasting but as everything goes over time you, you imagine that well, there's a million podcasts. Who knows where we are in the big picture, but we keep doing consistent work and we keep you know, showing up for work and we keep evolving, folks. We keep evolving. But on the most listened to podcasts in 2020, United States Weekly Podcast Listens, we are number 20, which is fucking astounding. 12 years in, still doing top-notch work, still happy to be working and always engaged with our work. And it's showing up 20 out of the I don't know whether there's 50 listed here, but we're, we're 20 and above us, there's, you know, the regular customers, you know, the NPRs and the uh, New York times. uh, And the, you know, Joe is up there at the top, but you know, Joe's doing that thing. But I'll tell you, we were, we were both pleasantly surprised and excited and self-congratulatory about this news how long we've been doing it what we've been doing and the fact that it sticks and it's consistent and it's evolving and we've been through a lot but this was uh this was exciting for us so I thought I'd share that now my guest today is Mark Harris the writer of books the journalist he's written several books on film uh Pictures at a Revolution is one that I just recently finished and I thought it was spectacular. It's uh, five movies and the birth of the new Hollywood. He also wrote a book called um, Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War. And he also wrote his new book, Mike Nichols, A Life, a huge Mike Nichols biography. And I was excited to talk to him because I dug into the book and it, it just reignited my brain in so many ways. The other thing I want to share is that I'm starting to see results from the meditation. I have fought the idea of meditation for a long time. I still kind of fight it, but I do it. I generally do a guided med- meditation with the uh, Headspace app. This is not a paid advertisement; It's just the one someone gave it to me for nothing, actually. But now I listen to the English guy. Okay, take a deep breath. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Eyes open, soft focus. Now get ready to lock down, because we're going to fucking meditate this shit to death. We are going to fucking so deeply meditate that you're not even going to know your name when you get out of here. You're not even going to know what day it is. We're going to get so fucking deep into it. You're not even going to know if you're a, a man or a woman or a gerbil or a dog or a little piggy. Yeah, we're going to get so deep into it that you're going to tap into the big hum, the big frequency. You're going to be in the canyon of time, not knowing what God is or who you are or whether or not anything is anything. That's where we're going with this. All right, now breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Now, why not you wank it? I'm sorry, it's a joke. It's a joke. You can do that after. Anyways, listen. I think what's happening is we never know the future, but we usually can plan. No one ever really knows what's going to happen, but usually you can hang your future thinking on some things you're looking forward to or some things you have to do. And that's gone because we don't know when we're going to be able to do things. I mean, you know, I'm not speaking for everybody, but I, I believe that the dread of really never knowing what's going to happen in the future, which is sort of a mortality anxiety, but the dread of not knowing when we're going to actually be able to do anything outside of what we have to do today and tomorrow, which seemingly has broken into a series of patterns that just maintain our sanity, but the anxiety of not knowing compounded by the other thing, the planning thing, I think is a lot. So what I've begun to notice about meditation I find that the the sitting, the guided meditation, the sitting with the breath, however you want to do it, the ability to kind of work that muscle, that mental muscle to focus on the breath and be in the present, to let thoughts come and go, to not get too freaked out when you get distracted, but to really sort of sit mindfully and focus on the breath to the point where that's all you're doing is sort of engaging with your breath. That working that muscle enables you to almost instinctively get into the present when you begin to have anxiety or dread. And it almost happens without you being cognizant because you've worked that muscle and that muscle is specifically to kind of not get lost in those thoughts. Now you have to decide for yourself whether you rather have a meditative brain or a brain that's on fire. Look, if you like firefighting, then you may prefer the burning brain. Um, I I'm not sure I like firefighting. I've been doing it a lot of my life, but it turns out that, like, I'm not really fighting fires. I'm just sort of like, um, kind of, you know, letting them burn. And then when they start to simmer down, I'll, you know, I'll throw a little bit more stuff on there. But I find that the meditation enables you to kind of, like, I have a hard time compartmentalizing because one bad thought, if you have a hard time compartmentalizing or if you're missing a small piece of your personality, you know, one small, negative thought or one bit of bad news or one kind of nugget, a little anxiety seedling can just grow fucking strangling vines all over your entire sense of being. If you get that meditation muscle going, you get that sort of mindful muscle going, you get that quieted down muscle going, you might have a little shot. You might have a little shot of compartmentalizing, of keeping things in perspective, of quieting the brain down, of getting into the present when necessary. You might be able to sort of dam up some of those neural pathways that kind of over fucking flood, you know, just kind of like stop them for a minute because, you know, when you have no control over the flood of, of fear, anxiety, dread, just I'm, I'm mixing metaphors. There's the brain on fire, then there's the, the flood of bad thoughts. I guess they can happen simultaneously, right? No amount of water is going to put that fire out. It's just going to flood everything. So then you end up with a bunch of fucking moldy, soggy books and papers and toys from your past and pictures. They're all soggy and fucked up because you let it flood and it made your past look dark. And then the fire is the future. You got a flooded past with mold, and in the future, nothing but flames. So meditation helps with that. And that was actually a guided meditation that I just did. Let's talk about movies. Mark Harris is going to be uh, talking to me. And this the book he wrote, Pictures at a Revolution, is, see, it's been a long time since I read about film, and all of us, I think a lot of us who are interested or studied stuff, are watching a lot of movies right now and I for some reason now that like some of the PTSD from my grief and recent trauma and the general trauma has sort of settled down I I find myself with this quiet time where I'm not you know pounding my brain with stand up and compulsively working on material where I'm, I'm actually trying to take things in again in a way that runs a little deeper than just get me out of now could somebody get me out of now but I think so many of us have lost context That so much of what we put into our brains is to try to you know get us out of now, get us out of us, you know distract us. But my depth of intellectual understanding is limited, and I don't always trust it because I don't think I'm that smart. That's just my nature. But reading this book, it it really this book, the one I read, I've read part of the Mike Nichols book, the new book, but he writes a lot about Nichols in. Picture of the Revolution. It focuses on the five films that were nominated for Best Picture in 1967. And through those films, he's able to analyze the cultural pulse of the nation, the politics of show business, the nature of each production, uh, you know what went into it on a writing level, acting level, producing level, directing level, and put that into the context of the larger history of film and the history of show business and the business and the people who were involved. And the films were Bonnie and Clyde in the Heat of the Night. Guess who's coming to dinner, uh, Doctor Doolittle and the Graduate, and through that he's able to sort of consider and assess the films, you know, for what they are, uh, in context of culture and criticism, because he cites a lot of the critics, but also how that shift in the culture and in the politics of the culture, you know, changed how movies were made, sold, and taken in. All levels working, all pistols operating. It's a real brain igniter. And in, in, in contextualizing these things, you know, you see the films differently. And I watched all the films again. And this is dealing with art, dealing with race, deals with gender, deals with age, deals. It, it's all there. And it's, you know, film is very rich like that. And I think what it speaks to in terms of my laziness as of late or my need to get out of the now or for just general distraction is that I think that cultural criticism, film criticism, art criticism, criticism in general, the deep stuff, not the review, not the this or that uh, good or bad thoughts on sounds like now trending, not that, but sort of true contextualized consideration of, of art or culture is is a bit waning which is sad because those things are needed. They're needed to sort of Understand comprehend the cultural conversation and what is happening to slow it down to consider thoughtfully And intellectually and historically a lot of that stuff is falling by the wayside and after reading a book like uh, Mark Harris's it's like it's so fucking important Because it's very easy to get lazy and it's very easy to get shallow. And, you know, most people don't think too deeply about anything because everything's moving so fast. And even smart people have given up without knowing it. You know how you just go to Rotten Tomatoes an 87. That's pretty good. How many reviews? A hundred. Let's watch that. But if you don't have anything in place to put things into context or to think for yourself, you know, you're just going to be citing other things you're going to be referring to clickbait you're going to be referring to something you heard you're going to be comparing blindly and that's going to sort of pass as thought for you you know we're volunteering for shallowness you got to go deep man and that's what criticism can do whether you understand it or not it'll take you deeper and make you understand that there is depth to be explored and i'm grateful for that i'm grateful for this guest and i I was excited to talk to him. He's also married to Tony Kushner, who's uh the probably the most brilliant living playwright uh, that we have. and uh, it was kind of hard for me at the beginning because I was like, so is like is tony just he's just in the other room just hanging out? What do you guys what do you guys talk about? like i it was hard for me <laughs> not not to do a bit of that. and i and I did do a bit of it to be honest with you. I did. So right now uh, this is um, Mark Harris that I'm about to talk to and his new book is Mike Nichols, A Life and you can get it wherever you get booked. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read the Fox page is for you get it now wherever you get your podcasts how you doing Mark
1: I'm good how are you
0: I'm all right man where are you in New York
1: I am I'm in uh, Manhattan on the Upper West Side
0: in your apartment yep is Tony Kushner in the other room (laughs)
1: he is in the other room i i I went and shut the door and said don't come out while i'm doing
0: this (laughs) now like you know he's you know obviously one of the uh the great playwrights and you are one of the uh, great critics you know now you guys are spending an awfully lot of time together um what do you talk about is it mostly politics do you do you watch a movie (laughs) and hammer it out or is it just like about food (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's definitely not mostly <laughs> politics. I mean, we we scream at each other about what's in the news the way a lot of people do. Yeah, um, but there's a lot of a lot of food discussion, a lot of what's for dinner, <laughs> a, a lot of what are we gonna do, um, yeah. and uh, and yeah, we watch tons of movies. I'm sort of the movie DJ, and he's the food guy. So so it it. Balances out nicely, and you know, we were both uh, stay-at-home writers, basically, before this all started, so it hasn't been that huge a, a change for us compared to a lot of other people.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got me watching movies. I, I decided, you know, they sent me all the books, and I thought the one that I could tackle before I talked to you thoroughly was uh, Pictures at a Revolution.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So well.
0: I, I I read that whole book, and I'm very proud of myself that I finished a book.
1: Thank you so much for reading it. These days, I'm very proud of myself when I finish a book. I'm proud proud of myself when I buy one. That seems like a big accomplishment.
0: Well, you know what the funny thing is, is this morning I'm thinking about your book, and I'm thinking about movies, and I'm talking to, I had a conversation with my agent yesterday about Warren Beatty, who he decided he's going to try to get on the podcast. And I just read so much about Beatty in your book, is that this morning I realized, like, oh my God, I I don't know where my copy of Empire of Their Own is. By Neil Gabler. I need need the book about the Jews. Uh, I need a new copy of that. So right before I got on, I bought a new copy of that.
1: I I can literally touch that book almost from from where I'm sitting right now.
0: (laughs) I love that book. You know, I I love great. Yeah, I love that book. And now there's a book I want to read about the Jews and uh, uh, creating comic books, the Marvel Universe and Stan Lee and that whole crew.
1: Oh, you know, that new Stan Lee biography that's about to come out. um, Yeah. I I think it's called True Believer. Um, That is a fantastic book. Just really, really really worth your time. Yeah.
0: So the new book that that you're out talking about, uh, this Mike Nichols book, Nichols, Mike Nichols, A Life. Like I read a lot about, you know, the, you know, Obviously, you wrote a lot about Mike Nichols in Pictures of the Revolution revolving around The Graduate and his New York theater days and everything. Now, what I want to know is, and I poked around in the new book as well, is that it seems like a, a quite a passion project to decide to write a 500-page book on Mike Nichols. Now... Like I, I know Mike Nichols is interesting, and I was very compelled by the stuff that you wrote in pictures at the revolution and i'd begun i'd had no idea about his background, about his jewishness and non jewishness and but um why why that guy?
1: Well, uh, I thought that uh, i mean it was a passion project, but I thought also I would never get bored while I was doing it because it really felt like in some ways I was writing about um Three full careers, like right, a, a full that. a full movie career, a full career at the same time directing theater, yeah. and then the the ten years preceding that, where he was this kind of game changing performing artist. So it really did feel like I didn't know it was going to be quite as long when I started working on it, but it felt like yeah, this is going to be a long book. It was a long, complicated life.
0: But like, were you able to? Because I, I noticed that the levels that you were operating at in Pictures at the Revolution and really addressing. How how Hollywood changed through these five movies, but you're able to tackle it on all the levels, you know, the levels of, uh, you know, cultural politics, uh, movie industry politics, you know, what it took to get the films made, uh, the actors, the scripts, the writing, the selling, the whole thing. And, you know, to me, it provided a a great overview. It's sort of like, you know, I read Raging Bulls and Easy Riders, the Biskin book, which is okay, But this was like setting the stage for that. This is pre that. Now, I assume that like you also were able to thread through the Mike Nichols book, the arc of history that he represents.
1: I I think I was. I, I hope I was. I mean, it's a really different task because pictures of the revolution I had, you know, six or eight or ten major characters to play with. And I right. was kind of interweaving them through a pretty concentrated period of about five years. And and so this book obviously is one life through 83 years. I, I realized I would have nothing to cut away to, which was a little scary. You know, it was – the the shape of the book was determined by the the arc of his life. But I did feel I could get into – the Chicago comedy scene in the 50s and New York nightclub life in the late 50s and 60s and Broadway in the mid-60s and Hollywood in the 70s. So I felt like, yeah, there's a lot of good cultural history and and background for me to play with here besides just Mike and his particular story. How
0: much did you talk about Shelley Berman?
1: Um, a little bit, because that was a really, <laughs> you know, intense. Uh, I, I mean, that whole uh, kind of... Boiling pot of Chicago comedy in the in the fifties when they were all really kind of inventing improv right. was really emotionally intense and particularly the the dynamic between Shelley Berman and Mike Nichols and Elaine May I mean Shelley Berman really wanted to be the third guy in a trio and and he also really wanted to work with Elaine May it's just about oh every I know man believe me did. I, so, I
0: I interviewed Shelley before he died I drove to his house and sat there. With him uh, he's you know he for some reason he had a, a large knife collection, Shelley Berman wow. and and he said uh, he said that the only reason that he did a foam bit which was half his bits was because <laughs> Elaine May wouldn't do it with him he said he said that's how he came up with the foam bit is that he had planned those things to be two people but because Elaine May wouldn't do it because she was with Mike. He had to do it on his own, the phone
1: bit. Well, it sounded to me like there were so few women in The Compass Players and that whole scene that, you know, to get with uh, Elaine May mel- meant that you had, you know, a chance to do a two-character thing on stage. And so everybody wanted her. And Mike Nichols was pretty blunt about talking about the degree to which he kind of stiff-armed Shelley Berman and said, nope, th- like, this nope. is... She's mine. You yeah. you can't go anywhere near oh, her.
0: Believe me, that's just one on the, the the large list of the reasons Shelley Berman is bitter. Yeah, you get, <laughs> yeah he's passed away sadly, but but uh, boy, get him going about Bob Newhart. There's no end to that one.
1: Wow, <laughs> that's amazing.
0: <laughs> These guys, some of them don't get any happier as time goes on.
1: Yeah, I don't think so.
0: So you were able to, do you, but you, I mean, you knew Mike Nichols, correct?
1: I, I did in the last probably 12 or 14 years of his life when he was in his 70s.
0: Now, were you making notes for that then? I mean, did, has this book been, been in the works that long?
1: Uh, no, not at all. Um, I didn't... Uh, first of all, I don't think I would ever try to write a biography of someone who is alive. That uh-huh. that just seems like... I mean, biographies are already such a big mountain to climb, and, and I felt that Mike was figuratively looking over my shoulder correcting me amending me the whole time if there had been someone literally there that would have been too much so i urged mike a few times to write his autobiography which he was not interested in doing but i never thought of it until uh after he passed away in 2014
0: and what do you think because i i know that in uh pictures at uh, revolution what do you think it was because he seemed to be kind of a uh, gifted in a very unique way around how he engaged with actors, and you know what he expected, both uh, in theater and in film. I mean, what was it? How did he change theater?
1: You know, this was one of the hardest things for me to reconstruct in the book because, of course, I can't go back and see you know, Barefoot in the Park in 1963, and, right? And and when you read the play, you think, oh, this is a sort of pretty typical comedy of its time you know uh just in terms of the lines and so i was really surprised to hear from so many people who had seen it that no 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 it wasn't that at all it was something really new Uh and the new thing that they said mike brought to it was that uh in between these very snappy like one after another lines he would find all these little gifts of realistic recognizable human behavior to give to the actors you know like so that they were saying these lines but what you were looking at was people sort of behaving the way people behave in the privacy of their own apartment and that i guess was really new and that was very mike like finding the the perfect little detail
0: that's interesting because that's not really you know that's not a method thing that, that's sort of a, a choice thing and it's sort of uh, giving somebody something to do.
1: Right, and, and, and something to do that somehow expresses who you are really between the lines of dialogue or under the lines of dialogue. Um, I think uh, as... Uh, I mean, Mike did study with Lee Strasberg and, and all of that, and he was interested in the method. But um, I think it more comes from his work with Elaine May um, and and from all those sketches where they kind of figured out as performers um, w- that they could do things, uh, even things that were at odds with what they were saying, that would instantly connect with the audience and, and make people in the audience say, oh, I, that that's just like me.
0: I get, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I don't think people fully realize just how huge uh, uh, a comedy act they were, you know, Nichols and May. And it came out, the Compass Players eventually became Second City, right? Or were parts of it.
1: Right. I th- or there's some kind of complicated split off where part of it became Second City and, you know, but yes.
0: Wasn't Alan Arkin and Ed Asner involved as well in the Compass Players? <laughs>
1: Yeah, Ed Asner was actually the first, he was a couple of years older than Mike, and he was the first actor that Mike ever directed, as as he was an undergrad at the University of Chicago, and and, uh, he directed Ed Asner in in a very short uh, play. That was Mike's first directing.
0: (laughs) I bet you he remembers that this whole life.
1: Uh, He he, he talked about it. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, Ed's a lot. I'm sure he always was.
1: He was great. He, I said, what, what do you remember about Mike? And he said, um, he was very effeminate, but uh, he was the kind of effeminate guy who would steal your girl when you weren't looking. So... <laughs>
0: <That's>... <laughs> <laughs> and then he talked about 9-11 conspiracies for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but, oh, so you are able to interview him?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was a thrill.
0: Who else I did mean... you talk to, the old timers, for the book?
1: Oh, my gosh, well... From that period, definitely the most important person I talked to was Elaine May. I mean, she she was hugely responsible for helping me understand exactly what their partnership was and how they worked together. And she had amazing stories to tell about, like, how the first time they got up on stage and and flopped at, like, the worst sketch they ever did and and why it was such a failure and what they learned from it. So, so, you know, of course, a lot of those people from the, the early 1950s when this all started are are gone i talked to um before he passed away david Shepard, who was um one of the founders of the compass and and was already struggling with um the beginning of uh dementia when mm. we talked but he really wanted to talk and and you know you find your way in interviews like that he he, he yes. found his way to some memories
0: well you know it's interesting because elaine is still very vital and still working i saw her in that uh the uh the, a play that revival of that um,
1: right the, the the Waverly Gallery
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: Elaine May was fantastic obviously like sharp as attack in in the interview and just had really great memories to share.
0: Well, that's interesting. Like how like y- y- you know so much of this because that was the thing that I got when I was reading you know the the pictures at the Revolution book was that you know I grew up in you know you and I are really the same age right so right. we're like three months apart real literally. I'm September 27th, 1963.
1: And I'm I'm November 25th, right during um, JFK's funeral.
0: Yeah, right there. I I got in right under the wire, then they they got him. (laughs) But, uh, so like I grew up like our generation it's weird because we're really not boomers we're maybe the tail end of it but we grew up in sort of the crashing wave of the 60s and into the 70s so if you gravitated towards you know what the 60s and 70s defined as a young person which I did you know film was very interesting to me so I studied a bit of film in college. Did you?
1: I did, yeah. And I, I probably had the same experience you did, which is it, it's really weird being exactly our age because yeah. you, you had to kind of choose to like for for me i i wanted to be a part of the generation that was slightly older than right. than we right. are exactly um, so so that's what i jumped toward yeah
0: because they seemed the smartest and the funniest and the the most engaged it seemed like so many things were defined Well, i mean if you, even if you think about rock and roll starting in 1957 which was our parents that like you know the the whole idea of of modern art film criticism uh y- you know taking risks uh, creatively it all happened just before we became conscious of what what was going on, right? So, like, there was this idea, there was definitely a feeling of, like, we missed the whole thing.
1: Exactly. It's a strange feeling, all your cultural life, to feel that you came in a little too late, that 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 all the action was just behind you. Right. And, and you know, I had older cousins growing up, and they always seemed to be really plugged into, you know, what was really going on that I wasn't old enough to see or wasn't old enough to do, and, and that just endlessly of course made me want to see it even more where'd you grow up I grew up in New York City oh so you're
0: like a New York kid
1: I am a New York kid yeah
0: that's amazing Why? how did that happen what were your parents doing
1: my dad was a lawyer and he was a native New Yorker he grew oh. up in the city and my my mother was uh she grew up in upstate New York in Syracuse um, okay and and came to the city to work as a as a doctor at St. Vincent's Hospital so so uh that that was my uh, childhood: a lawyer and a doctor. Uh, he was Jewish; she was Catholic. So it's
0: fascinating that, to me, you know. You're the second guy in a week I talked to who grew up in New York. I just talked to uh, uh Azza Jacobs. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. His parents were, you know, and still are, and were, you know, you know, kind of like edgy experimental film th- makers.
1: Well, I always felt like real New Yorkers were the people who came to the city and chose it you know i always felt like i landed here kind of and didn't earn it somehow but um but yeah i've lived here all my life and uh, And i still really love it
0: you didn't earn it came came from where like the old country
1: (laughs) (laughs) that was that was my grandparents yeah you know uh yeah they they did the work you know and i i I got the benefit,
0: but so but so you grew up like in in all that culture. That's the that must have been amazing because you had access. Whatever you may have been jealous of, you know, like it's like I was talking to Azza about his parents and you know, like and how he, you know, they, he would go, they would go like look at the, these like weird film festivals at the Museum of Modern Art. The one thing that you got when you grow up in New York is you have access to all of that. I remember going to the Museum of Film and Broadcasting. Do you remember what we had to do to watch film clips? You know, when we were interested back in the day?
1: Oh, so much work, so much work. And if you wanted to see an old movie like uncut and without commercials, you just had to like wait until it hit one of the revival theaters and then go, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah, and that was like what was fascinating about reading the pictures at at a revolution was that you know, the, I had no idea about any of that, about how long they kept films in the movie houses and they would wait like a year. They just let movies play like a year to see if it would make money.
1: Right. I, I read um, old issues of Variety and The Hollywood Reporter from that time. And the first time I saw this, I thought it was a joke. But they, they, they would say things like, you know, this week uh, in the heat of the night, hit the sixth and seventh run circuit of movie theaters. And there are apparently like nine circuits of theaters across the country, and movies would play sometimes for two years. Amazing.
0: And you you learned all that when you were writing that?
1: Yeah, I did not know that uh, before I I wrote the book.
0: Let me ask you this. Why doesn't somebody make a movie about the making of Dr. (laughs) Doolittle? I, mean, I would
1: rather see a movie about that than another remake of Dr. Dolittle. I think it would be a lot more fun. After I read your
0: book, I don't even know why they would make a remake of a disaster. Like, it was categorically <laughs> a disaster. I didn't know. I mean, I saw it when I was a kid. I thought it was all right. I can still probably remember two of the songs. But, but, but it was like from everything you wrote, it was a disaster. And the making of it just seems fucking hilarious. I mean, like, how could you not make that movie to, you know, give it the, uh, The treatment, like, um, what was that great great satire that Ben Stiller did, the war movie? Uh,
1: Oh, oh, Tropic Thunder.
0: Tropic Thunder. Like, treat it like that.
1: You know, when I was working on that book, the only time I had to stop my research uh, was about Rex Harrison. Because I thought, uh, the stuff I'm finding out is so bad that I have to go (laughs) hunt around for people who knew him to see if anybody has a good thing to say. And I I tried. I tried. And I... (laughs) I, I found a couple of people who who said, "Well, when are you writing about?" And I said, "1967." And they said, "No, no. He was a monster. <laughs> like if you were writing about the 50s or the 40s, there they, he was still a decent human being, but but not by then." Wow. So,
0: it's so funny cuz while I was reading it, I interviewed Jody Foster who has experience and memories with Stanley Kramer, and also like her mother worked for Jacobs. For
1: um Wow, producer. really. I didn't know that.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Her mother, like, you know, when he was still a p- publicist, her her mother was in publicity. What was his name? Arthur Jacobs? Arthur Jacobs. Yeah. Yeah. And he seemed like a character.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, again, like, died long before I even yeah. imagined the, the book. But but really one of those great kind of what makes Sammy run, you know, I'll, I'm going to hustle and pull this thing together, you know, just on scotch tape and a prayer and, and you know, and yeah. making this insane movie,
0: yeah. And he made a lot. He did a lot of stuff. A lot of those guys. Like, and I watched I watched all the movies again, except for Doctor Doolittle, which I guess I should. And I've seen The Graduate so many times, that I didn't watch it uh, again. But I wanted to watch. Um, I, you know, I've watched Catch twenty two, Carnal Knowledge, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I imagine you cover uh, uh, pretty thoroughly in the book. Definitely, because you cover Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf pretty well, because in in Pictures at the Revolution, because it happened before The Graduate, but you know, it seems to me that like the vision that Nichols had, you know, certainly for Catch 22, like now, now how did he, what do you think of that movie in terms of, did that get away from him or was that exactly what he was trying to do?
1: Well, Catch 22 was the first time um, that he really had absolute power. I mean, it, it was the first movie he made after the success of Virginia Woolf and the Graduate. So he had as much money as he wanted, which was more than the budget. He of the hired first everyone movies. in
0: Hollywood to be in it.
1: Right. And crazy huge cast from Alan Arkin and. Um, Wasn't
0: or- Orson Welles in it?
1: Or Orson Welles is in it. It Grodin. gave him like two weeks of absolute misery on the set, uh-huh. uh, according to everyone who worked with Orson Welles. And um, the shoot took forever. It was in Mexico. It was in Italy. It was in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, I, I think that. Mike, uh, in later years, kind of went back and forth between finding things to like in the movie and just feeling that he hadn't cracked it. That, that um, I mean, it was hard for him to separate the experience of the final product from the incredibly long ordeal of making it. And then, sort of the worst thing that could possibly happen, happened, which is he finally finishes it, they're three months from opening, and MASH opens and like the moment Mike Nichols saw Mash, he thought, "Oh, my movie's dead." I, I mean, that this is the movie about a- another war, but really about Vietnam that everyone is going to want to see. And this is the kind of loose, improvisatory, uh of your pants style that I should have gone for. You know? Yeah,
0: because like I don't know what the what his choice was. I mean, I imagine that the the weight of you know. How Fellini saw things must have been on him to some degree because it was really a a surrealistic, you know, uh disconnected film. I mean, there's a lot of great parts to it. And I know the novel's difficult, but there's no way that movie came together.
1: No, and Fellini, you're absolutely right, was really on his mind. Right. I mean, you know, he thought Eight and a Half for a long time was the best movie ever made. Yeah. And he wanted to go to Italy because, you know, he could he could do Fellini esque sequences there. You know, he just he he never Buck Henry, who wrote the movie, later said that he thought the big mistake was that catch 22 is all about attitudes and Mike was all about behavior and he couldn't find any human behavior to put in that movie. Kind of an interesting theory. Well,
0: that's interesting seeing that, you know, what we were talking about earlier was that was really the, the new thing he brought to theater was exactly that. Right. And somehow it, it, it got away from him in that movie probably because He got lost in, you know, just the expanse and expense of it. Like, yeah, it's hard to find humanity when you can do whatever you want with major movie stars.
1: Right. And when you're (laughs) crashing planes and and blowing up boxes of dynamite and, you know, like Mike was never a huge fan of filming um, outdoors or action sequences like that was not his comfort zone. And and uh The Catch-22 was the first time he really pushed himself there, and I I don't think it was a a happy experience for him particularly. It's
0: a bizarre movie. And Carnal Knowledge, I don't think, is talked about enough because I watched that recently, and it's a great movie.
1: I love it. I love it, too. I, I mean, I think if that movie came out right now it would be in some ways as shocking as it was 50 years ago.
0: Oh, just uh, for that last scene.
1: And that was also a very Mike thing. Like he said over and over again, if you, if you do something big, that's like a big public failure, which catch 22 was yeah. the best thing you can do is go right into something small that means something to you that you don't have uh, big commercial expectations for that. You just want to do because you love the people or love the material. And that's, that's how he got to carnal knowledge
0: did it do well
1: it did do well i mean it sort of turned out you know it it, it was a big commercial success and incredibly controversial and um was it really Cause yeah of the sex? Uh, yeah there was even an obscenity trial um uh that that went to the supreme court uh which actually like had to sit down and watch carnal knowledge and rule that it was not obscene um oh. so uh you know, it wasn't it wasn't the quiet little movie that that Mike thought he was going to make after Catch twenty two. It was a big, noisy little movie that he made. Isn't that, um, it?
0: Those fights. It's interesting that those fights were taking place. What year was that? Like seventy one, seventy.
1: It was seventy one, and it was right around the time that um, porn was going mainstream, and obviously, sure. Catch, uh, Carnal Knowledge is not porn, but but you know, it was it was. Right in the thick of those fights of what can you show in a movie theater? What's what's okay to oh, show? Oh, so on you're screen.
0: okay. You so you're saying it's just shy of of like deep throat showing right. in movie theaters.
1: Exactly. A couple of years later, I think actually by the time the the Supreme Court resolved the carnal knowledge mm. case, deep throat was open in theaters and
0: arguably r- ruined culture forever. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, now we, you know, that's another question about, not about porn, but like, you know, in reading the books and in talking to you, you know, and your attention that you pay to critics of the past and when I studied film like you know these this idea that there were these feuds between like Andrew Sarris and, and Pauline Kael and that there, were, there was like weight to them and you know the passing of the guard of the old dude at the New York Times and how that affected you know the run of a movie you know the importance of criticism both you know art criticism and cultural criticism what did, it it obviously carried a lot of weight at another time
1: it really did. I mean, there were, and you know, people talk about critics as as gatekeepers now, but now I don't really think there are uh, gatekeepers like that. But back then when there were so few critics and when, you know, like I remember growing up, my parents got Time Magazine and Life Magazine every week. Right. And if, if those magazines gave a movie a good review, and if it got a good review in the New York Times… yeah. They would want to go see it, and if they didn't, if everything got bad reviews, that movie was off the list. There was almost nothing that would change their minds.
0: That's interesting. So that again speaks to uh, the loss of, of, of monopoly and intimacy within the media landscape. That yeah, you know, during when there it was a time where you, know, you had three networks and public TV, and then you had you know a few large magazines. Really, most of the country was on the same pages, give or take, and the same information was coming in.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, what what they weren't on the same page about was movies didn't open in 3 or 4,000 theaters at once they 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 would have weird distribution patterns where one movie would open in Los Angeles and then sort of roll across the country and eventually get to New York one would open you know in New York and then Chicago and then Boston and then Los Angeles so so there wasn't this big like all at once here's the movie moment but on the other hand, movies stayed in theaters for so long that you really did get to have an ongoing conversation. Well,
0: yeah, them. and everybody wasn't connected. You know, you had to write a letter to somebody to tell them to see a movie I or make, <laughs> right. a, you know what I mean, or make a long distance call. So the, the actual pace of life was extraordinarily slower. And. And you could, I well, that makes sense. That's why you could run a movie for two years because you could open it up in an area, and you know no one else could see it. And the information they got about it would just be a long tease. And then you just sort of wait around until eventually maybe it got to your theater. There was no, no other options. Right.
1: Right. Um, and and if you wanted to see the movie the way you were supposed to see it, you did have to see it in the theater because it wasn't like there was cable. I mean, you right. you, you know, it, it would get on network TV eventually but it would be chopped up for length and chopped up for content so this was your chance like you had to go to the theater well,
0: it, so like in terms of like are there like let's talk ab- about it. like you know I've read Andrew Saris I've read some Pauline Kael I, I did a history of cinema class and you know I, I, I really think that you framed a lot of the stuff not just around, you know, Mike Nichols and the influence of the French New Wave or European movies coming into this country in the 60s and the influence they had in that book. I'm sure you talked about in the Mike Nichols book that, you know, that there was the context you created in pictures at the revolution really, you know, reframed my entire understanding of a lot of a lot about. Movies in general. Wow. And, you know, and I approach movies. I'm you're randomly intelligent. I wouldn't call myself an intellectual. You know, I, I, I have put a lot of stuff in my brain, uh, but I like to know that I'm thinking along the same lines. But I don't know that I ever would have seen Bonnie and Clyde as, you know, for most practical purposes, a European movie uh, in terms of the way it was. Um, conceived
1: and that was a, a little bit of news to me when I researched it how how much French movie making in particular was on the minds of all the people who made Bonnie and Clyde like over four years before they made it
0: oh yeah and the whole journey of those writers and that script and everybody involved it was all very fascinating to me but I mean do you feel like because back then when you talk about Pauline Kale you talk about Sarah you talk about who was the guy that wrote for the times the old-timer
1: Oh, Bosley Crowther.
0: Yeah, that they weren't just these were critics, you know, that that obviously there's a difference between a movie review and criticism. Right. And and it seems that there are there may be plenty of critics out there, but the outlets are so spread out. How do you find them? And now, you know, you're really dealing with something that seems to be a byproduct of how we live now is that most people look at an aggregate. You're going to look at Rotten Tomatoes, got an 85, 120 reviews. All right.
1: I'll take a look at that movie. Now, what have we lost? Well, it's a hard thing because, you know, you you go back to 1967 and you see Pauline Kael not just writing about Bonnie and Clyde, but writing 9,000 words about Bonnie and Clyde. And then on the other hand, you have Bosley Crowther, the, the New York Times guy, who literally said that he thought his, his um, role was to be sort of a, a pastor telling his flock what was what was suitable for them. And I don't think you'd want to go back to that, certainly. Um, But, and I think there are, you know, there's always um, the possibility of an interesting conversation being sparked on social media about a particular movie. But I think one thing we've lost is time. I mean, a movie has such a short window to make an imprint in any kind of public discussion. And if it doesn't, it doesn't get 15 or 20 weeks in the theater to build word of mouth. But doesn't but uh, isn't you know, that
0: part of the problem, Mark, that like, you know, that public discussion moves at such a pace and that everybody is forced into the position of an almost kind of aggravated passive engagement. I mean, unless you stop the clock for yourself to process something, it's just going to go away.
1: I, I think that's really true. And, and uh, people are already coming up with kind of I'm always fascinated when I ask people who like movies, do you keep lists of movies that you read about that you want to see? And so many of them say, oh, yeah, I have this whole document on my laptop. Because there's kind of... I think under that is the sense that if you don't grab this title and write it down... You will lose it. the 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 noise machine will move on before you even blink. Right. And um, I mean, I do that all the time. I write down movies I want to see because I know that in three days, uh, everything will be focused on something else. And and you know and
0: that's the same with everything i mean it's really sort of this weird problem and it and and it seems like the problem is happening directly to our minds it seems like the the events that happen in the in the world like somebody spent you know four years making that movie it released it goes away but in our mind it's sort of like oh i heard that i heard about it was any good i think i saw a thing and then you know you forget about it right but it happens with politics too i'm noticing that you know that we've we've all learned how to dismiss trolls and we've all sort of learned how to you know sort of try to rank intuitively what's amateur and what isn't. And I think in that process of filtering, uh, you know, everything just sort of, like, it gets, it's sort of like, uh, you you don't want to deal with it. You know, once it's behind us, you just don't want to deal with it. What I'm getting at is that as somebody who writes about film in a thoughtful way and takes the time to do the investigation, is criticism still necessary in your mind? And who is it necessary for?
1: Well, I think criticism... I'm not going to say necessary, but I will certainly say useful, because I think that if you take away all criticism and all you have left is um, a kind of hierarchy of marketing where movies that have enough money are the only movies that get attention, that's a problem. But someone was talking to me the other day and we were talking about this movie that I really love called um, Nomadland that uh, is- is I got to see that. I I
0: have it. I have the screener. You liked it?
1: I, I loved it. I really loved it. And this person said to me, Oh, I'm so sorry I missed it. And I said, You you didn't miss it. Um it hasn't opened yet. Yeah. And and it's not streaming yet. And they said, Oh yeah, but I, I feel like I read so much about it from critics in like September and October and then it just kind of went away. And so one thing I, ha- I I think critics are going to have to grapple with is you've got to get on a timetable that more conforms to how real people can see movies. I thought you, know? you were going to say, it- like,
0: the next part of that sentence was, like, I'm so sorry, I missed it. You did not miss it. And they said, uh, I will. I'll, I'll miss it.
1: <laughs> I plan to miss it. You know? <laughs> yeah, but it's like, I understand now the impulse to be first out with a reaction or an opinion. But if you're first out uh, on something that... um people can't see for months, and you sort of burn yourself out on the topic by the time the actual movie rolls around and is available, who are you serving? I think that's a question that a lot of critics are grappling with right now.
0: Yeah, who are you serving? Yeah, I and, and also, like, you know, and I think in the time, like, I started to think about just randomly before I talked to you because I, I you know, I'm trying to pull it all together for myself, that, you know, another part of the layer of discussion is sort of – You know, it was the struggle for photography to define itself as an art, that once everybody could have a camera, you know, how do you determine the intention, right? So now we live in a world, really, where everyone is equipped to do just about anything, and production values are sort of the same. Right now, I just did, I did the Tonight Show from my backyard. So, you know, that, and that, we're never putting that back in the bottle. I mean, that, that that's- I don't
1: think so. No. Yeah, I think that's here to stay. Like
0: what we're doing right now. So, like, how does that fall into the conversation? Like, how do you determine the integrity of something, of a piece of art, as a, you know, as a film specifically? It's <laughs> too big a question?
1: It, well, it's such a hard question because it connects to this thing that I'm grappling with, and I'm sure you are, and a lot of people, which is what is, like, we keep talking about after this, you know, right. after the pandemic, after things go back to normal but things aren't going to really go back to normal are they? No, I talked about that yesterday Yeah, we're, we're going forward to something that will have some more normal elements than what we're living now but some things are changing and are going to stay changed. And I don't think we've begun to realize necessarily what that means for movies and for how we see movies and for how we talk about movies and get the word out about movies.
0: Yeah, because everything's going to happen at the same frequency that, you know, the right. outlet, the, the portal through which we watch it's leveled. You know, there's no differentiation. I mean, you know, you talk about especially in the books and, you know, premieres and going to movies. I mean, that was already starting to taper off. But, you know, the, sort of the you know, you entered that world like I'm going out to do this to see this thing. And now everything happens in the exact same mode or medium or format like everything's coming through whatever size screen you have in your house or if you watch on your phone on the plane whatever the fuck it is so I mean I guess having to wrangle as a critic or as somebody who is dealing with criticism you know what does that mean what is what does that mean for contextualizing this stuff you know
1: I mean every every critic I know wants to get the word out to people about movies they love like good good critics bad critics i think that's one thing they all have in common that 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 they genuinely like telling people oh i saw something and it's fantastic you have to see it but how you do that and how you get heard above what you just said which is the the, everything being at the same frequency yeah I, i don't think we have begun to figure out an answer to that yet it's, I don't know. Really I, I I don't puzzling. know if there.
0: Yeah, I don't know if there is an answer, and I don't know if it's good or bad, really. Like you know, I you, you know, I, I I mean, I've adapted. I think you and I are like just under the wire on somehow being able to you know figure out how not to have an AOL screen name anymore. You know, <laughs>
1: right? we we're, we're, we're the oldest of the people who have cracked it. <laughs> right, right.
0: Or oh, you could just sign up for Gmail. Yeah. So. <laughs> but I, I i don't know where, like i i guess I'm, i i am i am nostalgic for when we had fewer choices and i'm nostalgic for when there were fewer voices <laughs> and it, i don't know <laughs> if that makes me a bad person or not
1: i don't know it's it's um it's hard because you know i look at a lot of um really great indie work yeah. um and and i think so much of this wouldn't have gotten made before you know absolutely it would be so no, hard to get these movies made yes. so Um, And yet it's really frustrating because I I want to tell people about these movies and every time, 100%, the first thing people ask me is where can I find it? And it's so puzzling to me that we don't have like the easiest possible system to tell people how to see a great small movie. You know, that should be at your fingertips. It shouldn't take nearly as much Googling as, as, as it does.
0: You know, you can't find the original Heartbreak Kid. It's not streaming. You have to go find a copy on YouTube.
1: Uh you can't find Silkwood, one of Mike Nichols's best movies. Great it's not movie. streaming anywhere because really? of some weird legal problem um, about who owns it. So it can come up uh, surprisingly with big movies like that.
0: That's a great movie.
1: I love it. I love it. And I I want to be able to uh, tell people to see it without having to say to them first, well, buy a Blu-ray player. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, you know. That's step 1.
0: Um, you know who's great in that? Craig T. Nelson.
1: He's fantastic. It's He's crazy. really, really good. Right.
0: So I, I guess like, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound older or close minded because I think you're right. I think that the way things have broken open, that, you know, the, the number of different types of voices and the number of like if you think about what you were writing about in the, in the early 60s in terms of the the uh, international cinema, you know, having it was inaccessible you know, until the mid 60s in, in this right. country, that now, you know, the, the sort of global nature of what we're able to take in, you know, almost immediately, you know, I think there's a, a natural sort of shallow condes- condescension uh, to the tone of culture uh, in general, and it's reactive and entitled and, and abusive that, you know, I think a lot of thoughtful stuff gets lost. How, how do you Find the the space and time to take in. How do you know what the fuck is important?
1: I mean, I, I sort of feel like we all have to do our bit. I mean, yeah. I'm like Twitter, I'm on Twitter, like most journalists sure. I know, and and you know the. I feel like the one thing I can do is when I see something that I really like, especially a small movie or a small TV show. If I say, "Hey, watch this," and and try to come up with a really short way of saying why it's great and why I think you should watch it you know, you just hope that maybe that will rise above the sea of noise at that moment. And yeah, and cause I think connect the, to a few people, the
0: one thing we're finding though, like really this idea of, you know, Not just not necessarily the free market, but that, you know, if everybody has access to expression, expressing themselves that somehow or another, you know, the cream will rise to the top that I really think that is not always true. I I think a lot of garbage floats to the top and it's promoted heavily and uh, it takes over the conversation.
1: Right. I mean, money is still a huge finger on the scale. So so it's not like the democratization of of. Social media communication has led to some beautifully level playing field where where only the good stuff wins. That does not happen.
0: Yeah, you know? and and then also you, you're up against the 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 bitterness of the talentless in ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other problem about how do you guys talk about it? You and Tony, or even you with other people about the sort of the nature of the attack on celebrity culture and and the arts in general as as being, you know, uh somehow uh perverted or 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 just useless.
1: I feel like there's this I mean, I'm used to that from the political right, you know, yeah. all of that kind of complaining about Hollyweird and and Hollywood is like a den of of uh bad morals and bad values. But but there is also this strain on the left that that sort of views Art and artists and and the makers of pop culture is fundamentally unserious and and um, corporate, uh, which is you know uh, the word that can be used to just cover a whole variety of or, sins. Or, or and,
0: as sometimes I've thought of it and have to sort of struggle with myself as as being a distraction.
1: Right, right. I mean, there and and you know, I get the argument that there's like. um so much going on in the world how can how can we devote any bandwidth to uh, movies and and television and pop culture but it, if if we really get to a place where you know we decide that um, art is completely expendable and pop culture is completely expendable because things are just too bad i mean that that would be just absolutely dire i don't i don't believe it as an argument ever you know I think, oh
0: because but, we would no longer be able to see ourselves.
1: Right, right, I mean we 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 turn to to people who make movies and books we love to to have little aspects of ourselves and of the world explained to us and shown to us in a new way. How can that ever be like uh considered a luxury option to me? that's essential
0: well, yeah, it's like theater it's like you know and it's like the overused uh idea of storytelling like I don't know when that that word became so prevalent. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but 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 it is true that like even with um your book, like, you know, even going back, you know, to uh to those movies that you wrote about or even thinking about Mike Nichols or who's afraid of Virginia Woolf that, you know, there is even because of the timestamp on them, you realize that there was a whole other way of perceiving then. That that has gotten lost. You know, there was a you know, the idea that these guys sweated over strips of film to put them together. You know, these these decisions that we're making, the collaborative process in a way that wasn't completely polluted uh, by marketing um, yet. Although, you, right. you, I mean, you were able to through the, the sort of veins of all those movies you captured, you saw all levels of it. You know, and, and also the, the kind of mixture of old Hollywood and new Hollywood and, you know, what acting meant and what, how, how people weighed scripts. And I think the biggest threat to what we're talking about and to criticism in general is that things happen so quickly. We're all operating in a certain amount of anxiety, paralysis and PTSD that we only engage passively and things just keep hitting us and keep hitting us that, you know, and, and it creates a cultural shallowness that if you don't fight personally to, you know, go deeper, you know, it's, it's a trouble for the entire culture.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's a hard, it's a hard ask for people, though, to say, like, go exploring. Because I get, like, you hear about a movie, you want to see it, you do the work to figure out um, where you can stream it or whatever. But, but... To go also, like, it can be really rewarding to just go put yourself in the atmosphere of a place like the Criterion Channel and say, I'm just going to yeah. see where where my mind takes me, you know, and not be afraid, you know. I mean, I always say to people, you can always turn it off. Like, if you don't like it, stop and watch another movie. But but go, go try something. But it's interesting
0: know? to see the courage of, you know, as a critic, like, to, you know, to see the courage of filmmakers – you know, from the past that, you know, that, you know, influence independent film now. And that, and to realize that all mainstream product movies, most of them for many years and to this day, you know, require closure and simplicity and compelling, uh, uh, uh but maybe stupid stories. Yeah, If you're going to sell a movie and the reason there's so many cowardly, you know, hits is that's really the business of movies. So when you talk about Bonnie and Clyde of The Graduate and you see like, well, these were. You know, outliers. I mean, it was a miracle that that things happened because it was really a populist movement of young people to sort of shift the 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 focus of films at that time. Right. And the critics.
1: Right. It, I mean, the only movie of those five that was not going against the grain of what was happening was Dr. Doolittle. Right. Like that that was mainstream Hollywood business and everything else was a, a little bit of a push or a big push towards something different.
0: But, yeah. but I think the the weird thing that I can't tell, you know, by we're talking like for me, you know, I there's still things that I need to reckon with as as who I am that I never quite understood that I can keep going back to, you know, to to sort of go deeper within it. Like I could never wrap my brain around Fassbender. And then you got the Criterion Channel and I'm like, "Well, well, we'll just try. You know, just start looking at things. Like, I knew that Veronica Voss had a profound effect on me when I was younger, but I didn't think I got it. And now, like, you know, I can contextualize everything. I'm older, I can, you know, read a little bit about it and then watch that trilogy. What is it? Veronica Voss, Lola, and, uh,
1: Marriage of Maria Braun. Right. And, yeah. and and
0: kind of put it into the context of, of Germany and his career. And but that's me. You know, I'm like I can't tell anyone to do that. And I'm not trying to be better than anyone else anyone else to do that. But for me, the art of film demands me to read people like you and also re engage with the work and, and, and see why it's relevant as an art form and needs to be championed as such.
1: Yeah, I love that feeling of going back to a movie every you know, 10 or 12 years right. or so and and in some cases thinking i wonder if i'm gonna like it this time like i've never I, i've never connected with this movie before but somehow i think maybe this time will be uh i'll get it and and or it'll be just be the right movie for me at the right moment in my life and you know i always think that's a great gamble to take like even if it doesn't pay off i like trying
0: who are you like who are the critics working now that you respect and read
1: Oh wow! Well, I I read um, I read everybody. I cause just cause I'm on the internet all day and I'm looking at stuff and I I love finding someone. Uh, but I like, who is a resource for you?
0: Where you like that? You know, you you respect their opinion enough to to sort of rethink things.
1: Um, Dana Stevens at Slate. I uh-huh. think she's a really interesting writer. Um, like I'm always curious to see what uh, Tony Scott and Manola Dargas have to say in the New York Times, even if I. Even if I disagree with someone, mm-hmm. for, for me, uh, like the measure of an interesting critic is not whether I agree with them a lot or not, but but whether it sparks an interesting argument right. in my head, right? And and so that's what I kind of look for in criticism: is it is it a good, um, is it is a good fight happening? Right. You know?
0: Yeah. And what was your reaction to like cause, like I just did this monologue the other day about how you know all these award ceremonies and the 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 sort of the idea of nominating things for anything you know in what we're in right now just seems empty and sad somehow
1: it's so strange like the golden globe yeah. nominations came out and and my and you know my whole crowd of people was fighting about the golden globes and I went on a podcast and was asked to talk about the the nominations and and I did and and all the while I was thinking I can't believe the golden globes are happening in this world right. like right. and I can't believe anyone is is devoting any energy to trying to win a golden globe or worrying about not getting nominated for a golden globe it's just I, like in some ways it made me really happy that We could take a big break from everything that is insane and horrible in the world right now to talk about, you know, best supporting actors or whatever we're pissed off about at the Golden Globes. Yeah. And in other ways, I genuinely cannot believe that there's going to be a Golden Globes uh, at the end of this month.
0: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's all kind of crazy to me. And I think that what we were talking about before and sort of where I was going when I spoke about the Golden Globes is that, you know, in the same way you and I were talking about how quickly things go by and how you have to grab onto things or, or, or take the time to, to go a little deeper with things or, or figure out how to choose things is that, you know, the possibility that we get through this over the next, you know, six months, that there's not going to be any way to compartmentalize this time. We're not going to be able to dismiss this year or two years of of, of what we went no. through. And and for me, you know, I talk to creative people a lot. I talk to artists and comics and Writers, you know, I'm friendly with Tracy Letts. And like, I, I know that there are people generating, but, you know, it's going to be, you know, a sort of a staggering, hopefully staggering to see how people depict and integrate what we're going through now into art in the very near future. Cause it's very hard to see anything now or to make anything, but I wonder how this is going to be sort of processed and interpreted.
1: Yeah. I've been watching my husband for the last 10 months, you know, who obviously does something very different than I do. He tries to create things, you know, you yeah. have to create characters, tries and, and, you know, he's, he gets asked all the time, like, oh, are you going to write a play about Donald Trump? Or are you going to, like, how how are you going to write uh, about this moment? And it, I know that it's something that he wrestles with a lot. It's like the question of even should I try to write about this moment or should I go chase something else that, that means something to me? Do, do I have the, can I afford to do that right now? Or should I, you know, is it part of my job to try to contend with this exact moment right. in my writing? You know, yeah, because it's like, a hard thing.
0: Well, yeah, you know, but, you know, what the, the weird thing about that is, is that, you know, it's relative to the outlet. You know, if if he's going to create something that he needs to workshop, when are you going to do that? Like and and, and also what about our, our, our own denial? Like, you know, most of us are sort of like, I want this to end, you know, like not, <laughs> you, you know, not like, you know, how is this affecting me and my family and, you know, people I know and, you know, what is it doing? What is what is the damage, you know, because that's the idea. It's sort of like, you know, do I just write uh, this musical <laughs> or right,
1: <laughs> Right. Or do I do I write something that carries the flag and fights the fight, which you know, sometimes you can do directly, but sometimes the, the best stuff doesn't emerge from from you trying to kind of make your contribution to the greater cause. You know, it, it, sometimes it comes out of you just following your own passion, even if it's for something strange.
0: Yeah. So, like, what are the other what what are the other movies that you liked this uh, that are, you know, being talked about? Did you watch uh, Judas and uh, the Black Messiah?
1: Yeah, and that's a movie I'm really excited to tell people about. Um I, I, I just thought that it. was Yeah. Ju- it was really powerful and I didn't know much about uh the the case at all going yeah. in or the story yeah. and um I felt like a lot with a lot of these fact-based movies one of the really hard things to do is um Catch you up on what you need to know, um, the historical context and stuff. Just give you enough going in so that you can race along with the story and with the characters. And I thought this movie did a really good job yeah, of that. Yeah,
0: it was amazing. And, like, you just compare it. It's so funny to me that, like, I didn't know much of that story. I kind of knew, uh, obviously, how it ended. But, you know, that character at the core of this thing, the one that Stansfield played... Is that his name? Uh, uh, yeah, Lakeith like yeah, yeah, Stanfield. He, I love him. Stanfield. Yeah. You know, that that moral, you know, the lack, the the strange moral compass. The idea that the protagonist of this film is the guy who's sort of like, I just care about me. I don't give a fuck about this. You know what I mean? I want to get out, you know. That that was who we're seeing this through was, like, you know, profound and challenging and kind of amazing. And but what I also like is that, you know, so many of these movies that they shoot about that time period they always look silly, but there was not they really got the time right. And I think it was because of, of a profound and uh, lack of white people that white people in those <laughs> costumes of that era, it's it's clown time. But for some reason, African Americans, you know, in the 60s always look great.
1: <laughs> They're just like, well, it's it's funny because I always flinch when every costume, looks like it just got dry cleaned and came off a hanger yeah. and it's perfect. Like no one has ever worn this before the second oh, yeah. you're seeing it. Yeah. And, and this, this movie did not have that this movie. Like it looked a little lived in and, and you know, that's pretty and, great. And, the, and
0: it's just so weird. Cause you watch the Chicago seven movie and that thing, like it was like you, there's no way you can, it's just stop making movies about white people in the sixties. <laughs> because it just, just, there's no way you're going to over, you're not going to transcend those pants. You know, it's
1: just. <laughs> <laughs> I like the pants-based theory of, of the, the trial of the Chicago Seven.
0: <laughs> what other movies did you like?
1: I really liked um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh yeah, um, you know I think it's super tough to adapt uh, plays yeah. to the screen, and I thought George Wolf and and that whole cast just did, they did a, a great, fantastic job, job with that. Heavy, yeah, it's a heavy movie. Um, yeah. So th- that it's a heavy movie, but. Um, so rewarding to just see those actors oh working my together god the way they so work together good. you know yeah like that that's why i love theater you know watching actors yeah and and, and you don't often see that on screen like a a, a cast of people working that beautifully oh together. A, so,
0: viola davis oh you know. my god
1: yeah amazing
0: what a performance
1: totally not like anything she's done oh my god so this so great. that's that's what i really love what else have you liked
0: yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, uh, what other, like, ones that I just watched on a screener. Like, I can't, like, see, this is the problem. You almost get, like, a like a, like a, a, a pandemic-induced dementia where, you know, days seem like weeks and things just, you know, you watch something and it just
1: disappears. I know. I used to remember when I was younger, I, I could, if you named a movie that I'd seen, I would remember exactly where I saw it. Yeah. Like, what theater, what night, and... Now to see everything at home and to be home all the time, it, it is making it harder to give every movie like a, a clean, you know, like wipe your slate clean and just try to yeah, watch it. Yeah, because
0: everything is sort of, it's all uh, uh, framed as like, well, what can we do today to eat right. up this time? You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I
0: watched a uh, first cow.
1: Oh yeah, th- I really like that movie. Um, like,
0: it's kind of you know what's cool? Did you notice that there was like two people from McCabe and Mrs. Miller in there, and that you know that you know it's got that tone. There's definitely a tip of the hat to that weird muddy McCabe and Mrs. Miller Altman uh, thing going on.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't see how you can talk about that movie without using the word mud. Yeah, like it's 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 a muddy movie. There, you know, it's about dirt. Yeah. Um, And living in dirt. And being buried Uh,
0: in it, literally.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That felt really honest and, and, you know, like a a tough movie to make. And they really, I believed it. I believed those people in that world. Yeah, that's all I can add. It so
0: reminded me of McCabe and Mrs. Miller.
1: Just you saying this makes me want to go watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller tonight.
0: Oh, you can always watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller. McCabe and Mrs. Miller is one of my favorite movies.
1: I love it. Last time I watched it, I watched it on... um, dvd and i watched it with subtitles so like english subtitles so that i could
0: I'll actually everything. hear catch here every
1: yeah
0: <laughs> that's hilarious um all right well look uh it was great talking to you
1: great talking to you too
0: and uh do you feel like we covered everything for you
1: I, I think so. I, I mean I, I love your show. I love that I had no idea where we were gonna end up going. Um it's it's like the most fun part of uh listening to you and and was the most fun part of doing this.
0: Oh good. Well thanks for doing it, Mark, and thanks for writing the books and I'm excited to sort of really dig in uh to the Nichols book and also the five uh, came back book. I uh, they sent Thank you they sent so me much. all the books and I loved uh picture at the revolution. It really got my brain going again and very excited about film. So I appreciate that.
1: I so appreciate it. Don't watch Dr. Doolittle. It's not fun. (laughs) I'm going to have to though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for talking.
1: All right. Take care.
0: There you go. The new book. I, I, I love I I'm my brain is ignited. Mark Harris's new book, Mike Nichols, A Life. You can get wherever you get books. You can get pictures out of Revolution. You can get his other book, the World War II book, uh, Five Came Back. Uh, Great writer, thoughtful writer, very engaging. And um, I like doing episodes like this. We don't do them that often. And now let's drift away on some guitar sounds that I made. everywhere